Timothy, if you'd like to turn there to 1 Timothy chapter 4, that's where our lesson will be this morning. But understand, it's not just, we're not reading a historical document whereby an elder gentleman talked to his young protege that he loved deeply in the Lord. Look at this as God talking to you and I this morning. Where I think Christianity has the potential of failing is when we fail to put into practice God's Word. You can know it. The Pharisees knew it. They didn't mind crucifying the Son of God. So it's not what you know. It's how you walk in it. It's how you apply it to your life. And that needs to be your commitment this morning. Not I'm coming to church because that's what I usually do. Or I'm visiting from out of state and I just happen to get stuck here. I had a flat tire out front of your church five minutes ago, so that's why I'm here in your service. You're here by divine appointment. You're here by, by divine appointment. Hopefully you came because you wanted to hear from God. That requires that you have a heart that is open to God. He might not tell you what you want to hear. He will always teach you what you need to hear. All that is required on your part and mine is a willingness to receive. Because here's what I find. Sometimes people after the service say, well, Pastor Jim, you sure stepped on my toes. Are you sure it was me? It is not my intention to step on anybody's toes. I'd rather die a thousand deaths. But I find if the Holy Spirit says something through me to you, you can either accept that even if it feels like God is stepping on your toes. Can I tell you, God, there is no Scripture that says God will ever step on your toes. Only 150,000 Scriptures talk about God getting your full attention. Okay, so that, let's use that terminology. It's much closer to biblical fact. But what is required every time we sit in His presence is a willingness to receive whatever He has to say to us, whether we want to hear it or not. Sometimes the Word of God is very blunt. The passage that we're in this morning uh, may grab some of you, and your first instinct is resentment. You're a child of God. I'm not questioning anybody's salvation. But when you hear what you don't want to hear, there is in your old sinful nature a resistance to the things of the Holy Spirit. Now, can I tell you that God's been cracking nuts a lot harder than you for a long time. So fighting God on any issue that comes up biblically is not a profitable adventure. Can I just ask one thing of you this morning? An open heart. Just an open heart, a little emotional honesty, a little bit of, I'm here, Lord. Pastor Jim would never do anything to hurt your feelings, step on your toes. Let's not use that terminology anymore. That is never my intent. But understand this, if you toes felt stepped on, mine got stepped on by God first. I'm never allowed to teach or preach anything that he doesn't make me live through first. So I can then speak from experience instead of hypocrisy. There is much pain in this life. There's a lot of questions that you and I might have. But you're a child of God. Let me tell you again, you're a child of God. You're a child of God. He's got this. He loves you. Whatever you're facing, whatever issues of life, and everybody I know has a plate full of stuff going on. I know that. I appreciate that I'm not minimizing anything that you are going through or those that we pray for, uh, the things that they're going through. We have, we live in a sinful, fallen world. Can we just say amen to that? But God is greater, isn't He? Isn't that what the Word of God says? Greater is He who is in me than He who is attacking me. Satan trying to get the best of us, hassling us, throwing us curves we didn't anticipate. But if we come to God this morning and say, Lord, here am I, your servant. Speak for your servant listens. If you come with an openness, you will profit this morning, I promise. Your marriage will profit. Your relationships, your work, stuff going on, all of this will be better if we just come to God and say, I'm exhausted, but I'm here to learn and grow and change. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's what the Bible says. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? And you say, oh, I don't need to change. Oh, yes, you do. Ask your spouse. You desperately need to change. Ask your co-workers. Ask your family. We all need to change and learn and grow. 
please don't resist the Holy Spirit of God this morning. I believe with all of my heart that despite my limitations, God can speak through me to meet you where you're at, even if I don't know where that is at. The basis of that is found in the book of Numbers. If God can speak through Balaam's donkey, he can speak through me. I'm just the donkey du jour. But you want to pay attention when donkeys talk. That's pretty unusual. If God can talk through a donkey, he can talk through me. It's not Jim Etheridge that's here to impress you or anything else. My job is to open up the Word of God to you. Your job is to receive it, not resist it. Receive. Lord, speak to me. That's the prayer of our hearts. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he continues these instructions of his. He has, first of all, it didn't, it's, I find it instructive personally. The first thing Paul talks about is, Timothy, watch out for false teachers. We know the heresy that was trying to make its way into the church was Gnosticism. Those that claimed to have a special knowledge that was the deeper truths of God. And people, I think there's a mystical side of us. We're drawn to that kind of mysticism. It's, it's why we like fantasy and TV and science fiction. There is something within us that's kind of drawn to that otherworldly aspect that is opposed to the mundane life that we have. But we have to be careful that we don't get sucked into false teaching. Plenty of it out there today. Plenty of alternative belief systems. I am, I am constantly... Impressed with what the world believes in, what it turns to, what it enjoys by way of entertainment, which looks remarkably like escapism. I don't want to deal with life, so I go to the movies. I don't want to deal with my work situation. I don't want to deal with my spouse. I'm just going to bury my head in the sand and lose myself in whatever the latest Avengers movie is. I like entertainment as much as anybody. It's a great place to go for entertainment, a poor place to go for theology. I'm hearing of kids these days that, oh, I'm embracing Norse mythology. What? When you go see the Avengers, watch it for entertainment, but don't go thinking that, that Thor is actually the son of Odin and he's some kind of demagogue upstairs. That is simply not the case. That's called escapism. No, the world is not a... A perfect place. So the first thing that is required of Timothy and those that he teaches is discernment. Be discerning these last days. Not only truth from error, but those that diminish the deity of Jesus Christ, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the, the, the Buddhists that are out there, the Mormons. There are a wide variety of religions that are false in nature and pagan to the core. They sound good on the surface. I had a great conversation uh, just last night with some friends, and, and this, this friend of mine said, you know, the Mormons were such good people, so sweet, so kind. And I said, yeah, if that's all it took to get into heaven, Jesus didn't need to come at all, did he? So don't equate false religions that are made up of nice people with that being an alternative way to heaven. That is simply not true. There is truth, and everything else but truth is false. And Paul warns Timothy, who is a young man, maybe perhaps even prone. His father had been a Greek. Maybe he was drawn toward the Greek pantheon of gods. Zeus, the supreme deity, the god of thunderbolts and lightning. Hmm. Were the Greeks wrong and were the Norse right with Thor being the son of thunder? I mean, who's the son of thunder? Can't all be sons of thunder. Well, there are many paths to God. All religions lead to Him, right? Nope. All of them lead to hell except Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be saved. I didn't say that. God did. You say, well, that's narrow. Well, narrow or not, it's the only way there is. It's a narrow road, Jesus said, that leads to eternal life. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. And many in our world find that way. It would be like a person coming up to me and saying, well, Pastor Jim, can you tell me after church service how to get to Pueblo? You betcha. Just head west, jump on I-25, bomb to Pueblo. 30 miles later, you're there. Well, I don't want to go that way. Then you really don't want to go to Pueblo. 
Well, I, I want to go this way. I think, or, or maybe that way. I'll head, I'll head toward Burlington. You won't hit Pueblo for a long time heading that way. You'll have to circumnavigate the entire earth. And then you'll wind up only right back here where you started, and you're no closer to Pueblo. You've taken a long journey of uselessness. What's the point? The religions out there today say there are many paths to God. You want to go to heaven? Who wants to go to heaven? Who wants to go to heaven? Everybody wants to go to heaven. There's only one way to heaven. His name's Jesus Christ. He's the highway that takes us there. That's the I-25, spiritually speaking, that we're talking about. And that's the good news to be shared with those that believe differently than you or I. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Many false religions, and that's the first thing that Paul tells Timothy, watch out for that. Don't tolerate that cancer in the name of grace. Oh, let's just welcome the cults and let's welcome these false teachers and Gnostics that are trying to undermine the deity of Jesus Christ. That's not grace. That's foolishness. Paul says to Timothy, do not do that. And then in chapter 2, he says, there's a right way to worship when you come to church and there's a wrong way. There's a spiritual way to do it. Now, there's a tremendous diversity that you see in the world today on how to worship, but he urges that requests be made and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving. Those should all be a part of every worship service in every church where the church seeks God, worships His holy name in whatever way the Lord has laid on their heart. Music and praise and worship has changed constantly in the 2,000-year history of the church, and it will continue to do so. But I understand some people like one form of music better than another. That's great. That's great. But I don't want to quench the Holy Spirit because my tastes might be different than His. I'm just used to something, but can I be flexible? Can I be loving? Can I do what pleases God, our Savior, and preserve the spirit of unity in the body of Christ? Yes, I can. Body of Christ is more than what kind of music you like, but he points out that we ought to dress appropriately. Verse 8 of chapter 2, we ought to lift hands, holy hands in prayer. Some people don't like to lift their hand. That's fine, but others do, and that's fine too. There is such a wide variety of ways, but it is not the position of the body that matters so much as the attitude of the heart in worship. Do you worship God with all of your heart? Some of you sing. You sing loud. Some of you can't carry a tune in a bucket with both hands. Fine, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. In fact, I sit on the front row, so number one, nobody can hear my voice, and number two, I can sing as loud as I want to. And there is nobody to discourage me or look at me, well, who's the weirdo back there singing at top volume? That would be me, and I'll be on the front row. I want to worship God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. But he reminds us that within the church there needs to be modesty amongst the women and how they dress, decency uh, that are appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And then he says, regardless of church government, in chapter 3, there are to be overseers and deacons. And by the name overseer, it means somebody in the church has to have oversight of all that goes on. We call him the senior pastor today doesn't mean he's a one-man show. I mean, no church runs without an army of volunteers, and that's you guys. Everybody has a place in the kingdom of God. Everybody has a place in serving in the church, the local church. It could be home fellowships or janitorial. It could be a thousand different things, singing in the praise and worship band, being an associate pastor. All of us have a gift and a calling but the deacons and the overseers are responsible for oversight in the church. And then in chapter 4, he continues uh, in these individual instructions that simply amplify on what he has laid as a foundation. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, the Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry, order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. 
He starts out by addressing a potential source of discouragement to every pastor. Some are going to walk away from the faith. Some are going to walk away from your church. Some are going to walk away from orthodoxy completely. Some are going to join cults. Some are going to chase after the teachers of men instead of those that teach God and God's Word. There are splinter groups throughout Christianity. The goal is always division. And the fruit of all division can only come from Satan himself. He is glorified when the unity of the church is attacked. We are not a denominational church at Calvary Chapel, but we are not opposed to denominations either. Only the tendency towards the historic walls that go up between believers. I say, can we agree on Jesus Christ, Son of God, come in the flesh, died on the cross, was buried, rose from the dead on the third day? If we can say amen to that, then we should be able to say, I'm a Christian brother or sister of yours. Let's, let's find common ground. I'm not here to argue Catholicism versus Protestantism. I'm not here to do that. I have no interest. Are you a child of God? I don't care if you're a Calvinist or an Arminian. Do you love Jesus? Then knock off the arguing. Stop it. You like to raise your hands? Yep. But there's another camp over there that says, don't like to raise your hands. Can I find common ground in Christ Jesus? Well, I like two kinds of music, Pastor Jim, country and western. Fine. Somebody else might like rock and roll. Somebody else wants to start a church that's made up of tattooed skateboarders under the age of 18. Please. Can't we just say we're a part of the body of Christ? We're one in Jesus Christ. He died to make us one. Jesus prayed that in his high, high priestly prayer before he went to Gethsemane. Lord, I pray that they would be one even as we are one. Don't argue over silly stuff. You like one kind of worship music versus another? Fine. Don't argue over it. Get along. Keep the peace. But some, Paul says, will turn away. Some will abandon their faith. Jesus warned us about the last days. In Matthew 24, verse 11, he said, at that time, many will turn away from the faith, the faith. That's the historic belief in Christ Jesus as Son of God and Savior of the world. The faith. And they will hate and betray one another, and many false prophets will come and deceive many people. There's many places in the New Testament where Jesus, as well as the apostles, taught that there was going to be a great many that fall away. Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns to earth, will he find faith? Or will have everybody grown stone cold? How many people do you personally know that once used to go to church, worship the Lord, read their Bibles, and no longer do? It breaks the heart to even think about it. King James says, in the latter days, or in the last days, other translations say. That's simply a phrase that means between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's not the rapture. The second coming of Jesus Christ is in Revelation 19, when we return to the earth with him. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, we come back riding these grand white horses with the armies of heaven above. It's magnificent. He'll come and take us in the rapture, but the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, everything in between, Paul tells us here, expect this. People you know are going to walk away from their faith. People that once said when they were youngsters, oh, I love Jesus with all my heart. People that were baptized. And then for years, decades sometimes, they no longer seem to have any interest in the Lord at all. You say, what happened? Jesus said in the last days, the love of many, the agape, only Christians possess that. The agape of many Christians will wax cold, Jesus said. Don't let it happen to you. Because when a heart grows cold, listen carefully, when a heart of a Christian grows cold, it grows hard. It becomes cynical. It becomes catty, self-centered, mean, irascible, can't get along with anybody. When the Christian's heart grows cold, it grows hard. The marriage suffers. The church suffers. 
I know the hardness of heart that can come from just the trials of life. I understand that. But fight that tendency because God is not your enemy. If you've ever read the book of Job in the Old Testament, he wrongly charges God with being his enemy. And God, in a nutshell, said, hey, I didn't have anything to do with this. Satan was hammering you. You're blaming me. What is your problem? Don't you realize Satan is the God of this world? As it turned out in the end, Job did better at the end than he did in the beginning. was more blessed. You just have to be able to get from here to there without the heart becoming hard. Life's hard for everybody I know. I could be wrong. Did any of you win that lottery that's now at, what, $660 million? Anybody win the lottery lately? Okay, so you're sad and depressed. Okay, let's start with that. Anybody just in love with their job and every single coworker that they got? Not many people. Not many. Okay, everybody in here is in perfect health, right? Perfect health. Never had a cold, never had a flu, virus, COVID, mumps, measles, rubella. Sinful fallen world, isn't it? Why are we surprised? Is your God greater or not? We sang that song, our God is greater. Yeah, but we don't act like we believe that sometimes. We start throwing the pity party. Oh, I got a, I got a big plate of mess on, to, that I got to deal with. Don't we all? Your mess is just different than the person sitting next to you. But we all got a hard life. Welcome to a life in a sinful, fallen world. It gets better. We die. <laughs> Jesus is coming back. Someday the church is going to be raptured. We'll be getting new bodies. Can I hang on to that hope? Yeah. Life's hard. I know it. I know it. I grieve over it. I cry tears over it sometimes when I see what people have to go through. But I know this. God loves you. God loves you. He's got this. He knows more what you're going through than any other man, woman, or child on this earth. He's going to get you through this. You are a survivor. I've got God's Word on it that you're going to turn out okay. You just got to hang in there and believe His promises. Standing on the promises of God. Boy, the saints have been singing that one for 150 years, but that's what we have to do in times of trial. Some will fall away. Some will abandon their faith. Some will give in to that tendency to badmouth God just because bad stuff happens to good people and it's not His fault. It's not. Job said, God, you're hammering me. and It was Satan all along. Young Elihu, at the end of all of the dialogues between him and his friends, stands up and says, who are you to blame God? God's not the author of evil. He didn't invent death. Adam and Eve sinned and death resulted. Blame Adam and Eve. Blame Satan who tempted them to sin. But in the latter days, some will abandon the faith. The root of that word is to be apostate. If it is not possible for Christians to fall away from their faith, why are there a dozen warnings in the New Testament written to the church not to fall away? Read sometimes Hebrews 6, Hebrews chapter 10 is another place. These are hard passages that remind us, it, of course it is possible to fall away. Paul's telling Timothy, some are going to fall away. And yet there is a stream of theology that is wrong as wrong could be. This is, no, it is impossible to fall away from God. Really? Then why in the world is Paul telling Timothy, don't let it discourage you when they do? Of course it's possible. We have a free will and volitional choice we made in coming to Jesus Christ and in staying with Jesus Christ. I'm not unsure of my salvation as long as I abide in Christ, but that's what Jesus said in, in John chapter 15. I have to abide in Him continuously in ongoing action. These apostates had not per, persevered in their faith. The root of the word apostate in the Greek means to remove, to instigate revolt. That means they want to drag others with them. To desist desert, and depart. Despite the fact that some claim that falling away is an impossibility, obviously, according to this first verse, it is. If it's not possible, why are there so many warnings against it written to the church and the individual Christians within the church? 
Paul says what they're going to do is chase after verse 2 such teachings, false teachings that he'd addressed back in chapter 1, Gnosticism, which developed into two streams. Docetic Gnosticism said, well, Jesus wasn't really a man. He was a phantom because we know the flesh is bad. He couldn't have come in the flesh. Yet in 1 John, John says, anybody who denies that Jesus came in the flesh is of the Antichrist. Wow, that's powerful. And yet these docetic Gnostics said, no, Jesus only appeared as a man. He was kind of a, a phantom. Serinthians, the other stream of Gnosticism, said, well, Jesus was born as a man, but he wasn't virgin born. He was just a man. And then the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism, but, but deserted him at the cross. Now, what kind of Holy Spirit would do that in the time of greatest need is when the Holy Spirit departed Jesus? Are you kidding me? In fact, Jesus on the cross said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Holy Spirit was with Jesus eternally. Eternally. You can't separate Jesus from his calling, the fact that he was the Son of God, filled with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was working in, on, and, and through him. There are still plenty of cults out there that diminish the deity of Jesus Christ today. The Mormons do. The Jehovah's Witnesses do. They say the Bible's not enough. You need the Book of Mormon, which is the latest revelation of God. And it supersedes the Bible because it came out later by Joseph Smith, who with the Urim and the Thummim interpreted some golden tablets that somehow or another disappeared. And so did the glasses. When, in fact, if you know anything about Hebrew, Urim and Thummim were rocks that were kept in the breastplate of the high priest to discern the will of God. It was never a set of glasses. And where's Joseph Smith's glasses anyway? Well, can't find those either. Well, isn't that convenient? Can't find the angel, can't find the glasses, can't find the golden plates. We read a mythical bit about all sorts of nations and societies that have never been substantiated archaeologically, but somehow or other we're supposed to believe that because they're good people. They're kind, they're nice, they're gentle. They believe a lie. They believe a lie. You want to buy into that lie, then you can too, can become a part of this apostate crowd that in the last days, Paul says, will depart the faith. Jehovah's Witnesses, why are they always trying to push that Watchtower magazine on you? Because the Bible's not enough. They're the first to teach you, the Bible's not enough. You need this, you need that. They diminish and deprecate. They say, Jesus, are you kidding me, is a brother of Lucifer? What heretical nonsense that is. But they're nice people, Pastor Jim. If nice got you into heaven, Christ came for nothing. Being nice doesn't get you into heaven. Jesus gets you into heaven. I can't afford these last days to allow false teaching to supersede the Word of God. I will not walk away from Him. He has never walked away from me. I will not abandon my faith. I may not have much faith, but that which I do have, I'm going to place entirely in the hands of the Son of God who bled and died for me. He's my Lord, my God, my Savior, and there is no salvation to be found in the false teachers that were prevalent in Paul's day right up to the present time. These are cults. Forget the nonsense. They're nice people. Their teaching is heresy. It is wrong. It is cultic because it doesn't jive with the Word of God. Stick with the Word of God and then you won't be led astray. Practice that spiritual gift of discernment and you won't be caught up in that nonsense. So Paul is simply saying in the last days there's going to be all sorts of deception out there. Danger of apostasy, the danger of deception, danger of false or compromised teaching that he calls the doctrines of demons. False and compromised teaching requires discernment these last days. I think that's one of its best uses. And the Bible is full of admonitions to be discerning. A gift, that spiritual gift of discernment given for the common good, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Distinguishing between spirits is that spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10. But Paul said this in writing to the church, the brothers and sisters at Philippi in Greece. He said in chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10, This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Can we put that up there? 
feel Philippians 1, 9 and 10? It's important that we love one another. I didn't say that. God did. It is important that we get outside of our own shell, our own comfort zone, and love one another. That our love may abound more and more. Love for each other and our, and our love for God. In depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure. God has called the church to purity, not sexual promiscuity, not living in sin with somebody you're not married to, not having babies out of wedlock. God has called us to be pure and blameless. Holy is the root of the word. I know that we live in a society today and age that deprecates uh, things like having babies out of wetlock or living in sin or the use of drugs and stuff. And society says, oh, that's okay, and they're decriminalizing drugs left and right. And you're going, what in the world is going on? Has it made for a better society? Has it made us more godly? Well, if we have a problem in society with it, let's just legalize it. What are they going to legalize next? Murder? Where, where, do you, where do you draw the line? In 1 Corinthians 2, 4, Paul says, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that are from the Spirit of God. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's what we've got to do these last days. Discern truth from error by knowing God's Word. We know it because we are in it. So many discernment passages in the Psalms, the Proverbs, that often accompany wisdom and knowledge, like Psalm 19 and verse 12, who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults, O God. So the author of, of that psalm is, is asking, God, search my heart. That's a good daily prayer. Lord, search my heart. Has it become hard? Have I bought into false teaching? Am I bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Am I confessed up? Proverbs 14, 6 and 33, the mocker seeks wisdom but finds none, but knowledge comes easily to the discerning. And in verse 33, wisdom reposes in the heart of the discerning because we discern truth from error. And such things, verse 1 says, taught by demons. Where's the first demonic doctrine we find? Genesis chapter 3. Now, Satan is talking with Adam and Eve in the garden and deceiving them. They obviously weren't exercising much discernment. You will not surely die, Satan said to Eve, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, you know, the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Boy, every false teaching ultimately comes back to that, that you can be your own God. You can be the master of your own destiny. If you do X, Y, and Z, you can get in touch with the infinite and everything will be fine. You can operate independently of God. You're not answerable to Him. You can become your own God. Do your own thing. If it makes you happy, go for it. You hear all of that nonsense today in the world. So, verse 2 says, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences, as far as God is concerned, have been seared as with a hot iron. Liars. You mean like the Gnostics? Yeah. You mean like the, the Mormons, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, the cultists, false religions? Yep, yep, yep. Verse 3, there will be some these last days. They will forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to receive, be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, because it's consecrated by the Word of God and with prayer. These Gnostics were practicing a Jewish asceticism that says, you have to keep all of the Jewish festivals, you have to keep all of the Jewish dietary laws if you're going to be saved, you're starting to think to yourself, I'm not sure I'm ready for that level of monastic lifestyle. I mean, how many of you have a fondness for barbecued pulled pork, shrimp, crab, lobster? I'm going to cover y'all, every one of you here in a minute. Hot dogs? You see, if you're going to keep the Jewish law and believe that the law saves you and obedience to the law saves you, you're going to have to abstain from all of the stuff you like. Jimmy Dean pork sausage? How could that be anything but heavenly? <laughs> you know, they thought if you abstain from certain things, you're better than others. 
If you don't drink alcohol, you're better than the Christian who does drink alcohol. If you don't listen to rock and roll music, you're better than the person who does. If you don't get tattoos, you're somehow or another more holy than the person that feels free to get a couple of tattoos or whatever. Legalism, that kind of legalism always leads to a self-righteous pride. I'm better than somebody else. Paul has said the letter of the law kills. And then, I know that some of us, myself included, come out of a Roman Catholic background. And I've always thought it was weird. Uh, of all of the Christian religions, uh, they are the only one that forbid their priests and nuns to marry. Did you know that? You may not come out of the Catholic. But nuns and priests can't marry. How well has that worked out for the Catholic Church? Paul says, in the last days. And you go, well, the Catholic Church has been practicing that for 2,000 years. No, they haven't. Did you know the Catholic Church allowed their nuns and priests to marry up until 1123? For 11 centuries, the Catholic Church read the writings of Paul and says, of course you can get married. You can be single as well. It doesn't matter. That doesn't qualify you for positions of leadership. They reinforced it again in the year 1139 A.D. But for 11 centuries, Catholic priests and nuns could marry. But since, they've been forbidden to marry. And look how well that's turned out. Constant charges of pedophilia, sexual misconduct, historic abortions by nuns, all because we did not follow God's Word. 1 Corinthians 7 says it's okay to be married. It's okay not to be married. But don't forbid people to marry as a matter of church doctrine. That doesn't make you more holy. Opens them up to potentially to more lust. Some Messianic Jews to the present day still keep the Jewish festivals and judge you for not keeping them. I've been lambasted by other pastors who said, how come you don't worship on Saturday? That's easy. I'm not a Jew. The Sabbath was a, a, a covenant made between God and the Jewish nation. If you were a Jew here this morning, that's great. What tribe are you from? Are you looking to the keeping of those festivals to get you into heaven? Our covenant is not based upon Jewish festivals or dietary laws. No pork, no buffalo hot dogs, no no shrimp, crab, lobster, clams, oyster, pulled pork sandwiches, spare ribs. Are you kidding me? I am so glad to be a Gentile. I'm so Gentile. I am a Gentile through and through. I'm saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, not by what I eat. I may be killed by what I eat, but I will not be saved by what I eat. Pastor Jim, too, I can see my tombstone. Pastor Jim died of too many hot dogs. Parentheses, and it may be too much butter. You've got to die of something. I'll die happy. I'll die happy. I'll eat what I want to. I'll try to be the best steward I can be, but I understand regardless of what I do, I'm destined to die sooner or later. Doesn't matter how good a vegetarian you are, you know, or how, how skinny you are, or how, how fastidious you are about what you consume, and you should be a good steward. Don't get me wrong. But forbidding people to marry, as, the, as they said would be the pattern in the last days, in, in verse 3, we, then we're living in the last days by, by definition of that. Verse 4, for everything God created is good. I'll tell you what, every meal, I say thank you, Jesus, for food. It doesn't matter to me what the food is. The other day I got hungry and Kathy said, you want to grab some lunch? And I, I said, well, I already did. What would you eat? I popped open a can of Vienna sausage. And she said, that's not food. That's not even meat. I said, no, but real men suck the juice. <laughs> and then they eat the weenies. I don't care what I eat. I really don't. I'll eat anything but fruitcake. Rhubarb, can't eat rhubarb. Fruitcake, rhubarb. Raw oysters. God made fire for a reason. How the world and... Satan have twisted, verse 4, everything God created is good. Satan has tried to pollute everything and say that, oh, you can't eat that, oh, you can't eat this, make you more holy if you do. Job made this classical mistake. His friends made the mistake of thinking bad things only happen to bad people, so Job must have gotten away from the Jewish dietary laws. That wasn't why he, what was happening to him happened. 
There must be sin in Job's life to account for the trials he was going through. Great trials, you must be in great sin. That's, that's wrong. Bad things happen to good people all the time. We live in a sinful, fallen world. Let's understand that, not judge each other. Everything that God gives us by, by a way of food. In verse 5, because it's consecrated by the Word of God. Made holy. God, God gave us food to eat. That's fine. Made holy rather than and declared holy, absolutely, by God. And by prayer. Verse 6, if you point out these things to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, Timothy. Point these things out to the brothers. A lot of what I tell you from this pulpit, you've heard before. But you may be struggling in doing. How many times have I said from the pulpit, we should obey God's Word? I say it all the time because some of you aren't. The Bible says, Romans 16, obey all authorities that God has placed over you because God placed them over you to rebel against those authorities and the laws that they enact is to rebel against God. Okay. You say, I'm good with that. Really? You have any issues with road rage? Do you not wear your seatbelt? Because I can't, wear, I can't wear those stupid seatbelts. I hate it. It's the law. God says obey the law. Well, I mostly keep the law except when I'm on the highway going from here to wherever I do. Oh, 85, 95. Really? That's a sin. You know you're not supposed to do it, but somehow or another you've justified why breaking the law is okay by you. We get hit with that all the time. The city says, don't water your plants out there but three times a, a, a week. Okay. But it does say you can take a water can out there and do that. It says all sorts of things. Can't have a rooster in town. We had chickens in town one, once, but you can't have a rooster in town. Seems like silly stuff. Of course, I don't want to wake up to cock-a-doodle-doo next door at 5 o'clock in the morning too, so I'm kind of all in favor of that law. But there are things, can I tell you, God expects you to keep the law, not make excuse for it. Do it. It pleases God when you do. Can I tell you, it displeases God when you choose not to. Don't do road rage. Don't, don't speed. Wear your seatbelt. Obey the law. Does anybody have any questions? This isn't overly complicated. I think most of you have a third grade education, okay? Here's the problem. I can't make you do it when you walk out of this building. Can I tell you something? God's watching you. God's watching you. Don't you mess up. Don't you mess up. I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm trying to make you see the importance of obeying God's Word, not giving it lip service. Oh, I'm a Christian, but I cuss and I swear and I get drunk and I speed and I don't wear my seatbelts. Are you sure you're a Christian? You don't do anything that pleases God and you do everything that pleases the flesh. So how are you a Christian again? Well, I got baptized when I was four. No, you just got wet. So my job, verse 6, is to continuously point these things out to you. That's the, my job is, to, is the instruction of the brethren. And verse-by-verse verse teaching keeps us on point about that. And now verse 7 and following is all about keeping your priorities straight. He says, verse 6 leads us into that context. If you point these things out, Timothy, to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, though brought up in the truths of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. He had godly uh, parentage behind him in his mother and his grandmother, though his father was a Greek. Verse 7, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. That is interesting to me. My job is to point out to you what the Word of God encourages you to do and then encourage you to put it into practice. But when he says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, he's probably referring to the mythical stories that were built on Old Testament history. In their time, it was called the apocryphal books. There's a lot of books that were written in Bible times that didn't make it into the Bible because they weren't Scripture. 
It wasn't the Word of God. It wasn't penned by authoritative people under the inspiration of, of God's Holy Spirit. And so fable and myth and history all got tangled up. How many of you saw that 2014 movie with Russell Crowe uh, and Jennifer Connelly? It was named Noah. Did you see that? I saw it just because I thought anything with a biblical title in the movies I have to go see. What I didn't anticipate was nearly all of it was heresy. <laughs> Oh, the Noah was right, okay, but they had some weird stories and mythology wrapped around it. These guys made of stone helped them build the ark, and, and there were Nephilim and, 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 and giants that looked like these stone. It was just bizarre. And then Noah was going to kill, you know, one of the babies that was born on the, on the boat. And you're thinking, well, where did you get this stuff? It has nothing to do with Scripture. Well, not only was it Hollywood embellishment, but they took it from Jewish mythology that had nothing to do with the truth whatsoever. So people, Christians, went to see Noah, and then for the next five years asked me, well, what about this in the movie? Because the movie Noah said it. Like, that's authoritative? Hollywood's not authoritative on anything. Nothing at all. Stick with the Word of God. That movie was so full of apocryphal nonsense but lest we be too hard on, on that one, have you noticed today's infatuation with Norse legend and mythology? You mean like Thor, the god of thunder? Love and thunder. Uh, why are we obsessed with that? It may be just entertainment, but you understand there's a generation of kids out there that, have a, that think they're part of the Avengers. There's some of them that think they come from Norse deity. There's some weirdness out there. You know, every, every once a year up in Larkspur, they go through this role-playing fantasy life, uh, you know, in the Renaissance Festival, and some of, the, some of those guys get a, just way a little too much into this. You know, with the witches and the warlocks and the demonism and the cultic practitioners. Get, I went a couple of years back and I said, I can't come back to this. I don't care how good the hot dogs are. I can't come back to this nonsense. The raw turkey, the turkey legs that are barbecued, okay, that's fine. But, or or the, look at the infatuation, comic book heroes today, the Avengers. Even worse is the infatuation with forbidden, underscore the word forbidden, occultic practitioners, witches, warlocks, wizards, soothsayers that have been popularized in the Harry Potter series. Listen to this carefully. The Wikipedia reports, quote, the original seven books of the Harry Potter series were adapted into an eight-part namesake film series by Warner Brothers. In 2016, the total value of the Harry Potter franchise was estimated at $25 billion. It's based upon everything that's forbidden in Scripture. And Christians lap it up. Oh, this won't affect me. It's forbidden in Scripture. Why would you watch it? I don't understand. It promotes things amongst our children. $25 billion. It's all about money in the world. Making Harry Potter series one of the highest grossing media franchises of all time. Demonism has been successfully marketed to the world. And the church. There's churches having Harry Potter uh, masquerade parties at their church. So now we're exalting demonism, witchcraft, occultic nonsense that were, is forbidden in Scripture. But that's not the only one. Since 1996, when the Pokemon franchise first brought uh, in, in revenue in 1996, they've since then exceeded over $100 billion in total global revenues. You say, okay, Pokemon, what's Pokemon? I didn't know, so I had to look this up. By taking Japanese myths and folktales from around the world and adding a unique twist, Pokemon is continually creating new critters. Japanese myths and folktales are the basis of the franchise. Pokemon means literally pocket monsters. Currently, there are 720 of them associated with the Japanese worship of dead ancestors. You didn't know that was the background of Pokemon. You just thought they were cute. Satan is looking for a foothold anywhere he can, and he's alive and well in the entertainment industry. Be, be careful of that. 
he says in verse 7, have nothing to do with these godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, here's what you do instead. Train yourself to be godly. The word train there in the Greek is where we get our word gymnasium. You can go to the gymnasium and bulk up your muscles. And Paul says, there is some profit in that good cardio workout or strength training as you get older. Oh, totally. That's, that's fine. And Paul says, that's great. But what's better? Train yourself to be godly. Go to God's gymnasium, okay? Go into your gymnasium. That's fine. You'll look a little prettier. You build a little strength, a little endurance. Okay, shed a little weight. Oh, gotcha. That, that all has benefit, but only in your flesh and only in this world. Have you noticed breaking a sweat in a gym doesn't make you more spiritual? Doesn't make you more spiritual. It is of no profit spiritually to you. And that's what Paul says. Train yourself to be spiritual. Go into the gym, that's fine. But understand its limitations. It only helps you as long as you wear this earth suit. Because when you're dead, it won't profit you an inch. It won't gain you a bean's worth of glory in heaven when you get there. There's no reward for that. But on the other hand, while there is some profit in the flesh, how about you go into God's gymnasium because that pays eternal benefits. There's eternal rewards that go with that. You want to balance the two out. I want to be a good steward of my body, but for me, I'd rather have a poke in the eye with a sharp stick than go to the gym and work out. And why in the world do all of those gyms have mirrors on all of the walls? Have you got that figured out? What kind of vanity is that? Ooh, look at that mirror. Whoa. Look at that, oh baby, you see that muscle? Oh. Vanity, vanity, vanity. <sighs> Show them your God muscles. Show them how physically fit you are spiritually. Verse 8, for physical training is of some value, to be sure. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. What precious promises we have in the Word of God. The effects of working out is temporary at best. It's not eternal. It doesn't help us make us more spiritual. So while it may be a part of my life or yours, it's not where I hang my hat. Verse 9, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men and especially those who believe. I like that. Paul says, I labor and struggle with this. I, I don't care about working out in the gym, but this is what I do labor and strive to accomplish, telling people that we've put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men. That's interesting. He's the Savior of all men, not just the elect, as the Calvinists say. I'm surprised at how many times the Calvinists have it wrong. If you simply look at what the Word of God has to say versus what Calvinism teaches you. Calvinism has splintered many off from many churches in the pursuit of a theology invented by a man, but disparate with the Word of God. It says here, God is the Savior of all men. He's not saying that everyone will be saved. That's called universalism. But this, that He offers salvation to all and He saves all who come to Him. That's what Paul is saying here. Jesus didn't die for just the elect. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Ezekiel puts it this way in the Old Testament. God's not willing that any should perish. Peter picks up on that in his writing and says, God is being patient with people, not wanting anyone to perish, but that all come to repentance. That's the heart of God. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. People choose hell by choosing not to bow the knee to the one true living God. He is the Savior, obviously, especially of those who believe. And in verse 11, command and teach these things, Timothy. Don't let anyone look down upon you because you are young. He's writing to Timothy here. I can't apply this to myself unless, well, I'm, I, I'm young. I mean, compared to Moses, you know, he was a died at 175, so you know, I'm, I'm young in comparison. But here's what you do regardless of your age. Set an example for the believers. You. Set an example for the believers in speech. There shouldn't ever be any cursing that comes out of your mouth. There shouldn't ever be any foul jokes or 
course language. Set the example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Feel free to highlight verse 12. That's God telling you this morning what is important to Him. Set a good example. It'll always be in line with God's Word. Timothy, at this time, he's probably in his mid-30s or perhaps a little younger. Set an example in speech, life, love, faith, and purity. I highlighted those in my Bible because I want to pursue that stuff. Until I come, verse 13, Paul says, devote yourself. This is for Timothy, his pastoral calling. Devote yourselves to just three things. The public reading of Scripture. That is cool. That's why we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter in Calvary Chapel. It's what we do. It's a safeguard for you and for me. This is the public reading of Scripture. That is the Word of the Lord speaking to you. Secondly, I am to give myself to preaching and to teaching. Do you know the difference? They're very different in the original language. Preaching has an evangelistic thrust to it. Preaching is so, so that people can get saved. So Timothy was to devote himself to preaching. But then teaching is what happens after they're saved. Once the goat becomes sheep, you can speak sheep language to them. Okay, you can feed them on the Word of God. But unbelievers that come into a church service scratch your heads and goes, wonder what they're talking about. Well, these things are spiritually discerned. If you're not a Christian, church feels pretty weird to most unchristians. If you feel comfortable in a church service and you're not saved, you have to ask the question, are they? A lot of church services are going on that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. That shouldn't be. But I'm to devote myself to those three things, public reading of Scripture, to preaching, sharing the gospel with the people in the service and outside the service, and to teaching you as a child of God, teaching you to put these things into practice. Verse 14, don't neglect your gift, that is your spiritual gift, Timothy, which was given to you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid hands on you. There's a lot tied up in that. Every one of us has spiritual gifts. There's only four places in the New Testament those spiritual gifts are enumerated. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Ephesians chapter 4. It's twice, uh, two different lists in 1 Corinthians 12. I'll let you read those yourself. But every one of us is spiritually gifted. You may or may not have received your spiritual gift by the laying on of hands. Timothy did. It was probably a public declaration of his call into the ministry. He was not only a pastor, but Paul's representative everywhere he went. So he's telling this young man, don't neglect your spiritual gift. And whatever spiritual gift you may have, dear friends, don't ignore that. If your gift is tongues, that's great. Exercise it. If your gift is prophecy, encouraging, giving, there are many spiritual gifts listed for us in Scripture and probably many besides those. If your gift is prophecy, your giving, evangelism, healing, leadership, teaching, all of those spiritual gifts listed in those passages, use it or lose it is what he's saying. There are a lot of people who say, well, I have the gift of tongues, but I'm going to a church that doesn't approve of the gift of tongues, so I don't ever practice my spiritual gift anymore. Okay, number one, tell me why you're going to that church and tell me why you're not using that spiritual gift outside of church. Use that spiritual gift. If they won't let you where you're going to church, well, certainly use it at home or wherever you can. Exercise your spiritual gifts. If your spiritual gift is giving or encouragement or any of the others, practice that spiritual gift. Do it. Do it. Sometimes people will amaze you. I can say this because he's not in the room. I have noticed a particular spiritual gift in my seven-year-old grandson, little Isaiah has the gift of giving. Here's the deal. He doesn't own a thing. He has nothing to give. And so you know what he's constantly doing for me? He's going to do it this morning. He's going to run out of Sunday school. He's going to run me right down and says, Papa, I made this for you. And he's going to give it to me. He's got that gift of giving all the time. Sometimes I'll go over to his house. You know what he'll do? He'll take a toy out of his toy box. And he'll come to you and say, Poppy, here, I want you to have this. I want to give this to you. 
He's got nothing but wants to give everything. And I thought, that little boy, that's what the gift of giving is all about. It's not that you have so much to give, but what you have, you'll gladly share. You'll gladly share. It's the person who says, I got two coats, you got none. Here, take a coat. It's the person who's always looking to give to somebody else. Don't, don't equate it all the time with money. My little grandson doesn't have a penny. But man, I've never seen anybody with the gift of giving like he has. Brings tears to my eyes. Didn't Jesus say, in bringing a little child before him, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven? I'm striving to be as giving as my grandson is. I want to learn from him. Learn from those around you what the exercise of your spiritual gift looks like and do it with all of your heart as unto the Lord. Never think that you have a lesser spiritual gift. If you've asked God to baptize you with his Holy Spirit and to fill you with whatever spiritual gifts he's got for you, understand then whatever gift you got, that's his best for you. Don't compare it to somebody, oh, I really wish I could preach. We really wish I could speak in tongues. Oh, I wish I had the gift of giving like little Isaiah does. You got the best. You got what God wants for you. Exercise it. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy. Don't neglect the gift that you have received, which was given through you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. His ordination was public. You don't necessarily need that. Certainly don't need that to receive your spiritual gift. Holy Spirit gives that. I, I can't give that to you. I wish I could. <laughs> Verse 15, as he wraps it up, be diligent in these matters. Just circle the word diligent. I did in mind because I tend to be diligent about lots of things except these things. So I want you, your homework assignment this week, and there will be a test. Your homework assignment is to go back over this chapter and to highlight those things where the Holy Spirit is speaking to you are areas that need improvement in your life. Whether it's the exercise of the spiritual gifts or setting an example or or. The things that we have said, oh, I, I'm a Christian, I can't, I can't violate the Jewish laws, you know. Well, you just read back over chapter 4 and say, the Lord's really speaking to me on this issue or that. And feel free to highlight that one because the Lord is speaking to you on that issue. And just be open and say, Lord, I, 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 probably, I didn't see it this way before. I have a spiritual gift. Forgive me for not sharing it. So many times and places and circumstances I find myself in where God can use me, but I'm too chicken. Let him. I'm too intimidated by the world or the guy sitting in the seat next to me or a co-worker. The bottom line is this world needs Jesus. The guy sitting next to you in the workplace, in the cockpit of the airplane, wherever you find yourself, the guy you're putting with in the foursome out on the golf course, those guys need Jesus. They need Jesus. Be praying for their salvation and look for opportunities for God to use you to encourage godliness in them. Be diligent in these matters, verse 15. Give yourself wholly to them. Highlight that one. I underlined it in my Bible. Give yourself, Jim, wholly to these things so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Why? Number one, God's watching. Number two, other people are watching. Your children are watching. Your next-door neighbor is looking at you, hoping to see the legitimacy of your faith. Your co-workers, the people that you rub shoulders with day in, day out, Monday through Friday, they're watching. You don't always see them watching, but they are. You're a real Christian are you really loving him? Are you encouraging him? Do you use the name of the Lord regularly? Persevere in these things, verse 16, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now understand, God alone saves. Paul is not saying anything different here. But God can use you and me and Timothy to lead others to salvation. God can use others. That, that's what Paul is saying here. Persevere in these things, Timothy, because if you do, your example, your example in speech and in your lifestyle, in your the exercise of your spiritual gifts, it's proof that you're saved and you can actually save other people or watch God save them through you. But be an active ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ these last days. That's all 
that Paul is telling Timothy. So I would like you this week to go back over chapter 4 by yourself with your highlighter. And all you've got to do is say, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me. I don't know where I'm doing good. I don't know where I'm going bad. I might need an attaboy. I might need an encouragement to do things a bit differently. But Lord, I know that your word speaks to me here and now and today. So let's stand together, shall we, and close in prayer as the band comes up. Your word is truth. Sanctify us by it, Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus prayed. I can't pray better than that. Sanctify us. Make us holy. Make us like your son. I want to make you proud, Heavenly Father. I want to do what's right. I want to say what's right. I want to think what's right. I want to not be so naive as to think that everything is good out there. There is false teaching and the forces of Antichrist that are at work in the world today, and I want to avoid those things. There are things that are spiritually profitable out there, and there are things that are not. Like you told Timothy, uh, while there's lots of things that are good, not everything is the best. Help us to discern these last days to pursue that which is best. Lots of things we could waste our time with. Lots of endless entertainments out there and distractions. But I have to understand, Lord, we have to understand that Satan is doing everything he can to invade the church and help us to find palatable the things that he desires. I don't want to have anything to do with them, Lord. I want to serve you. I want to seek you. I want you to make me holy. I want you to use me for your purposes. I pray your richest blessings upon my brothers and sisters. I pray for happy homes and full hearts. I pray for everybody that is in this building today that they would walk out here this morning and go, man, I heard from God. I was blessed to praise and worship. It spoke to me the word. It, it touched me in places I need to be touched. Oh, God, I give myself to you wholly and completely. Oh. That's what we desire to do this morning, Father, as we commit ourselves into your hands, Father. In Jesus' all-glorious name, amen.